Cool. Well, welcome back to Dropping In Surf Show, episode two. We made it to two. I'm so yeah, excited. <laughs> uh, today is April 29th, 2020. Uh, we are recording from Belmarine Keys, California, and Corte Madera, California. My name is Rob Case. I am a paddling coach, and I teach surfers of all levels all around the world how to paddle with less effort, how to paddle faster, and how to prevent injury. And with me, uh, as always, for two episodes, is my friend and colleague, Jim Segelnik. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Good, Rob. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. I had a good week. I, uh, I tried out some new tech, and I know tech is right up your alley, man. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I'm pretty good <laughs> at it. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I actually, I got two new things. I got a watch that um, can track us out in open water. So for all like the big wave surfers and the paddle boarders and long boarders, we can really stretch out the playing field and record some different data, which is really cool. Very and then cool. I got this thing. I kind of jerry rigged it. So it just goes around your head. It's supposed to go around goggles on a, on a, for a swimmer, but it, it's got this bone conductor here and it tells you where to go out in the lagoon it's crazy it's like you're five meters off go one go to one o'clock and you're like you turn to one o'clock and they're like yeah you're back on track and so oh, it actually wow. helps them go around the lagoon without me having to yell at them oh that's very cool so you like put in some predestined kind of path on your app or whatever and then it kind of tells you if you're on or off from that yep exactly wow. exactly cool and stuff. it's pretty accurate there was when I was testing it, there were a couple times that I was kind of doing circles, and I, I'm sure my neighbors were like, what the heck is he doing? <laughs> he must be drunk, because I'm on this paddleboard just kind of doing these circles, trying to find the, uh, the they call it the waypoint. And so that was a learning curve for me to, to use fewer waypoints. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awesome, man. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. So pretty good week. Yeah, good. What have you been up to? Yeah, um, since we last spoke, I've been um, still in the clinic working. Uh, we're doing telehealth um, at the clinic, which is, you know, um, just all video and phone appointments and doing some kind of piecemeal hospital training, doing triage, um, which is just super interesting in itself because it's, it's, it's very uncomfortable for me. Like, okay, if you have this scenario, this is what this lo looks like, these like directions I might go as a sports therapist, like that require gloves and a mask and a, you know, uh, a splash shield. I'm like, man, I didn't sign up for this, you know? So, <laughs> um, so every, every week I get a little spooked, but, um, as you, as you already know, in, in Marin County, the cases are pretty low and, uh, the governor's talking about, you know, this staged plan of opening things back up. So, yeah. um, I, you know, it's looking hopeful that someone like me probably won't even be utilized at that kind of triage level, but, um, you know, so, so that's good. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, you know, we have a client that is on the front lines. Uh, she has been treating COVID patients at Marin general and, uh, yeah, she said she sounded pretty tired, but she also sounded like she needed a surf break really badly. Is that uh Diana? Uh, Dina. 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 Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, your neighbor is isn't she well, like she, right near you? She moved. Yeah, she she oh, moved. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen her in a long time. Um, and I I spoke with her on the phone about something unrelated. 
um, she had called me and we caught up, but, uh, nice. um, yeah, that's right. I, I, I totally forgot she was even acting in general. <laughs> well, you're, so am I saying it right? Are you in Corte Madera or are you in Green Bray? Cause Lori was like, oh, he's in Green Bray, which I'm like, what's the difference? <laughs> Couldn't tell you. Um, maybe, maybe <laughs> like a 30 foot distance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People I'm technically in Green Bray, but people, oh. um, uh, call it Larkspur and Corte Madera all the time. So like, okay. I think, uh, Larkspur and Corte Madera are twin cities and there's probably some like legal thing that I don't fully understand where they're like joined municipalities or something. But, uh, uh, Green Bray, uh, is essentially, um, where, uh, the ferry building is in, in Larkspur. It just gets called Larkspur quite a bit. So someone much smarter than I could probably explain the difference, but I, I don't fully understand it. Right now, that I never knew that. I always knew that as Larkspur and Corte Madera. It's kind of like if I called Belmer and Keys Nevada. Yeah, you'd be like, "Well, it's it's Nevada, but it's Belmer and Keys." Got it. And I'd be like, "Man, I just don't understand it." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there's another one. I'm I'm also in Ignacio, so it's like they're oh, all. Man. It's all messed up. <laughs> yeah, we, we got to bring in our attorneys to really explain this. So I'm gonna, I'm going to redo that recording from Green Bay, California. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, welcome back to the show. We made it to episode two. I'm very excited about that. Um, for those of you that are just tuning in on, on this episode, uh, to give you a little bit of background on what we do, we drop a little bit of math, a little bit of science in with a whole lot of surfing, and hopefully you walk away learning uh, something that you can use or at least think a little bit more about. Pretty cool, I think. I'm super excited about today because um, I, <laughs> I, I went between like four different topics in the last week. Um, and, and just to, just to let everyone know, um, uh, this show is brought to you by our sponsors, saltypt.com and surfingpaddling.com. We're really branching out, Jim. Yeah, you know, it's been amazing how much money's come in since the last um, episode. <laughs> you know, I, I thought I was going to be late writing you a check for this um, this podcast, but uh, it's just amazing. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. And, and you know what? You don't know this yet, but it went to a whole new level in this episode. You'll yeah. find out later. It's awesome. very exciting. I'm, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we get to uh, before we get to that, um, let's talk topics. So last week I talked. I, I said that maybe I would do the timing of the sprint in this episode, and then later and over the weekend I thought of some something else. And and right up until yesterday, I had my topic, and I was I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about this. It's going to be awesome. And then I got an email and it totally blew everything out of the water. It was an email that, um, it was from a guy that is, he's currently in module three of the online course and in module three and four, for those of you that don't know, that's where we talk about propulsion and we talk about what moves us through the water. And in it, I talk about this kind of abstract, uh, way of teaching that, that you want to learn to develop a skill of feeling water and quote holding water and we kind of talked about it last mm -hmm. week with anchoring the hand right mm -hmm. 
it's a very abstract concept. It does have a lot of science behind it. He's like, yeah, all of your other techniques has all this science behind it. And then you get to this and it's like touchy feely, like feel mm. the water, kumbaya stuff. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yes and no. There's a ton of science behind it, but it's way more complex to really explain. So this is a perfect venue to try to explain it because yeah. th there's been more recent explanations of it that really kind of break it down more clearly. And this way we can at least kind of have a back and forth uh, Q&A about it. Um, so the reason I teach the way I teach online is that it's it's a faster way of getting to the same point. But what I was pulling up, and, and I've been following this guy for a couple of years. Jim, I'm wondering if you know uh, this book by Anthony Blasevich. I think I'm mm. saying his last name correctly. It's sports biomechanics. You, I don't think I've seen that one. You're going to love this. You're going to have to cool. borrow this because there's a whole chapter in walking and gait biomechanics, mm. which I know when we first met, you're like, yeah, I've done a bunch of studies on gait. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that is super interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I think you'd really enjoy this. Yeah, I um, I went to, I think I said this last time, but I went to Chapman uh, University down in Orange County, which was relatively close to USC in um, what's called the Rancho Lab. And essentially the gate book of my profession was done there. And as students, we got to go um, to that lab at Rancho and kind of see how it all worked, which was, oh my gosh, it was just so like simple and complicated at the same time. Uh, essentially you have like uh, a force plate on the floor that's the size of a room and people walk across it and like, you know, you have, you have um, a lab hand kind of reading the pressure per step per when the foot hits the ground at what stage of the gate cycle. And um, it's that lab alone is really, I wouldn't be surprised if that guy kind of cherry picked from that lab, but like, that's where we got to know really just some basic foundations of gait, like okay, you need about 10 degrees of dorsiflexion to walk normal. You need about 65 degrees of knee flexion to walk normal and so forth. And these muscles activate at this stage of gait cycle. So if you see deficits at that phase of the gait cycle, you're already thinking what are the requirements per the stage, which really as a clinician just kind of gives you clues on where somebody's problem might be. Um, it's just another data point that we use combined with kind of like how most people would do, oh, I got an MRI of my knee and, you know, it shows a torn meniscus or whatever. And we could go, yeah. And, you know, that's kind of linked to how you're walking and what I found when I put you up on the table and did all these other tests. It's this like preponderance of evidence that says, yeah, okay, it's, we should do this to impact that. So that's cool. And, and it got me thinking how it might relate to surfing. Yeah. In, 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 you know, we talk a lot, I know, uh, Tim Brown talks a lot about posture mm -hmm. and how it could affect your surfing. A lot of people talk about posture and how it can affect your surfing you, you as well. I wonder even if it could be linked to gait and how we walk even. Yeah. That'd be an interesting kind of concept. What do you, what are you kind of thinking on that? I, I would love to put a force plate on a surfboard too. Yeah. And, and see, you know, do a comparison of the pros versus us normal people on yeah. pressure, but also, like you said, the mobility down in that region, dorsiflexion and 
uh, all the other big words you, uh, you used. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sometimes I get carried away. Um, if I can kind of riff off that, um, one of our uh, mutual clients, April Denny, um, who is, uh, for those of you listening, April Denny is a got a bachelor's in kinesiology and she went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and she maybe had some interest in um, uh, becoming a sports physical therapist and so you know she kind of comes to me and asks questions about the career and uh, I, I had a chat with her today and um, she uh, recently or in the past got accepted to uh, San Marcos down south and she's going to uh, pursue her master's now in kinesiology. And so she was like, Jim, I need to come up with a thesis before I go into this uh, school. And uh, what do you think I should do? And I was like, hey, whatever the hell you want. It's not my thesis, you know. Um, but, you know, I know that's why she didn't call me. She kind of wanted to. Um, she knows I read surfing evidence and uh, or the literature and um, I practice in sports. And so to your point like i was like yeah you know what i've always been interested in is we have like all this literature that like bases um the whole basis is to help people in pain right and so like there's a there's a good amount of literature that supports for example the thoracic spine's mobility specifically with extension and so um the thoracic spine being the part of your spine in the middle of your uh back and your, your cervical spine anchors to your thoracic spine. And then you got this kind of shoulder joint that's, that's a little bit in between of those two. And so um, if we were talking about the thoracic spine, if we improve that mobility, we can improve the function or how the neck feels. So we can make the neck hurt less if we make the thoracic spine move more. And we can actually make the shoulder indirectly lift higher if we improve the thoracic extension and we can make the shoulder feel better too. So like, you know, when I do this simple thing, a lot of complicated things are happening in, you know, theoretically, um, there's thoracic extension happening there a little bit as I lift my arm. And I said, you know, April, like what would be kind of a neat study is what if you took something that applies clinically and so if I was feeding you an idea of interest, like, hey, this is my interest, what if you could show that you improve thoracic spine mobility and that impacts paddle time? That would be awesome. Now, that's just my idea. But like, you know, going back to your point, you can pick up thoracic spine stiffness and gait. So is it all connected? Yeah, you know, um, uh, you know, it, it, it can be directly or indirectly um, and what I mean by that is sometimes we tie too much to gait and we, we lead people down a road that is like maybe irrelevant, but like, I would argue that a good musculoskeletal, a good musculoskeletal therapist can see a stiff rib cage and thoracic spine and, and gait, which might translate into a stiff objective measure, i.e. that thoracic spine is stiff with extension. Let me make it move better. And now my neck and shoulder move and function better. So that research doesn't exist. Um, but there could be a neat link there. Yeah, yeah. And I, th I think that, you know, the guys down at uh, Cal State San Marcos, uh, Jeff and Sean, they're, they're awesome to kind of foster something like that. And any of her ideas, they'll be pumped on anything that's related to surfing. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I was pumped for her. Um, she had some other ideas that were really good, too. Um, things that I don't know a lot about, like uh, um, some of this ice bath stuff, you know, um, 
Wim Hof is super popular, obviously, and, um, you know, breath training has kind of become, I don't know if um, popular is the right word because breath training has kind of always been a thing, but, you know, nowadays with Instagram and, and some of the social media, you see, like, maybe some of the marketing aspects of how it's been, like, uh, maybe marketed to groups of people like surfers, and I think it makes perfect sense, like, especially if you're kind of pushing your boundary to get involved with bigger waves you want to be able to hold your breath for safety reasons mm-hmm. um and if you can learn breath training and that helps your chronic low back pain too then that's awesome um but she was talking about like uh she wanted to understand further understand um maybe how cold water therapy affects the sensitivity of the nervous system um and try to apply that to surfing in some sense and i was like wow that's pretty have no idea how you'd set that up, but it sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, only only a former uh, Ocean Beach lifeguard would think that way. Totally. So, <laughs> yeah. So she's one to kind of keep in your back pocket, and I actually um, set her up with uh, a couple of our colleagues down in San Diego who are also physical therapists: Elise um, Cortini yeah. and Shane Carpenter, who are awesome physical therapists, and um, maybe they can assist her down the road with setting up some sort of research design and um, selfishly I did that so I can kind of keep my finger on the pulse so when the results come in like I'll be second in line to hear about it yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) that's really cool that's kind of an aside but I love that I love that and I know we were trying to get April uh, to one of our level one weekends just to kind Mm -hmm. of feel it out but um, yeah I'm stoked that she's going to pursue that that's fantastic Yeah. yeah And look at you stepping into like the mentor role. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I know, man. I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and proceed because I'm very very excited about this topic. Yeah. Um. So I'm trying to think of how to start this. I I think when we talk about the feeling and the holding of water, let's first explain. What is it that you're feeling? Okay, so I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna show you, but for those that are listening, I'm gonna try and explain it. So as you get into your underwater arm stroke and what I call the front propulsive phase, you have your, your forearm and your hand as your paddling blade, and it's proceeding backwards through the stroke towards your feet. So what's happening, what you're feeling is uh, water particles, that actually slow us down, uh, that we focus on a module one and two, which is basically drag, right? So these water molecules that slow us down, we can also use to propel us forward based off of the third law of motion, which is that for every action, there's an equal opposite reaction. So we wanna move forward, we have to push backwards against those water particles. And that's what we call drag force. And so we use basically those water molecules are colliding with what we call the ventral side of our hand, which is our palm side of our hand and our forearm. So that palm side of our hand and forearm is the ventral side. And all those water molecules are colliding with this surface area. And then we push against it and it brings us forward, just like kind of a sup paddle would as well. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Now, What's happening during that, the science behind what's happening during that is that as your arm 
proceeds in the backwards direction, it creates kind of like a hole behind it on what we call the dorsal side. The dorsal side is like the back of the hand side of the arm. And that hole, it has a lower pressure than the ventral side, which has a higher pressure. And in physics, high pressure fluids, when we're talking about fluids, high pressure likes to go to low pressure. And so, so what tends to happen is around the arm, around the hand, around the arm, the, the, this flow of water is trying, all this high pressure is trying to get to the low pressure. So it's going around the arm and, and trying to fill in that low pressure, but the arm is continuing to go backwards. And it's that, it's that pressure that I want to talk to you a little bit more about because that first drag forces, I think people kind of understand that really easily. But to step up your propulsion game, to step up really when I want to say power in your stroke, there's another force that we tap into in water uh, called lift forces. And the lift forces are primarily, they primarily have to do with this pressure differential between high pressure and low pressure. And it's a, a concept called the Bernoulli effect. Now, over the years, the Bernoulli effect has been studied in swimming. Since the early 60s, Doc Councilman started to uh, try to explain where lift was coming from in addition to drag forces in the propulsive phases of the stroke. Um, and in, in pretty much every single decade, there's new research coming out. Uh, I, we've, we finally got, I think Blasevich does, does finally a pretty good job at explaining Bernoulli effect. Um, without totally confusing because over the years I was always confused by it because they always try to like talk about like an airfoil and, and lift and 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 it has to do with um, you know like uh, airplanes and wings well the way he explains the Bernoulli effect is a little bit different so let's just explain what the Bernoulli effect is the Bernoulli effect basically says that there's a co coexisting relationship between the flow of water and the speed at which water flows, so the kinetic energy of that flow of water, with pressure and potential energy. So there's three things that coexist together. There's potential energy of the water, there's kinetic energy of the water, which is basically how fast it's going, and there's the pressure that is being experienced with the water. Now, most people associate Bernoulli effect with Strictly, when there's a high, fast flow of water, there's low pressure. And they think that it's always like that, and vice versa. If there's a slow-moving water, there's very high pressure. But there's, there's a, a, something in math that we call a proof that basically disproves just that one understanding of that inverse relationship. For example, if water was going down a hill, right, it's going fast, the water is flowing fast, but the pressure hasn't changed, right? So what has changed is the potential energy, it's using gravity. So there's this other kind of variable in this thing, in this equation, and all we really need to understand is that there's this coexistence between pressure and water flow and speed. It doesn't necessarily always work inverse, but the Bernoulli effect, mostly when you see it, there's this inverse relationship. Cool? We following it so far? Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. All right, cool. So now we've already talked about how there's pressure difference between the ventral side or the palm side of our arm and the dorsal side or the back side of our hand, right? So you have high pressure on the, on the palm side and there's low pressure over here and the water's trying to get to the low pressure. And what's happening with the drag force is that all these little um, water flow around the arm is creating these little vortexes and that's creating this thing that we can hold on to and push against and moves us forward. But there's another force that's helping us move forward, which is the lift forces through the Bernoulli effect. What they found, which was really interesting, is that up here in the upper part of the arm, since it's closer to the, to the axis of rotation, the upper arm is actually moving through the motion slower than the hand is from front to back because the hand is furthest from the axis of rotation, which is our shoulder, right? So kind of like, I think of this as if you've ever ice skated or roller skated and you've done like the circle thing where like everyone holds hands and you kind of skate in a circle. If you've ever been on the inside, you're like, this is super boring because you're going really, really slowly. But if you've ever been like the 10th per person down in the chain, you're like flying fast, mm -hmm. right? So that's the angular velocity concept where you're furthest from that point of rotation, you're going to be going super fast. But if you're close to that axis of rotation, you're going to be going really slow. So does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So since our upper arm is closest to our axis of rotation, it's actually moving from front to back slowest. And because of that, because that water flow is slow, guess what's happening to the pressure up here? It's, it's high, increasing. Yeah. right? Okay, so, so even though on the dorsal side, it's lower than the ventral side, from top to bottom, the top of the arm has a higher pressure than the bottom of the arm or the hand part. So there's two, two separate, well, there's many pressure gradients, but let's just two different areas of pressure gradients. There's the ventral side to the dorsal side, which we've already talked about. So the palm side to the back side of the hand, but there's mm -hmm. also from the top of your arm area down to your hand, there's another pressure gradient. And this is really exciting, okay? So, so because of this, remember high pressure likes to go to low pressure. And so what happens is the, this low pressure actually forces pressure down and increases the, the high pressure on the, on the palm part of your stroke. So not only are you pushing against drag forces, but you're also getting lift in the direction you want to go because of this pressure gradient going down the dorsal side or the back side of your arm, which is nuts. And there were two different studies that, that Blasevich actually pointed out. Um, one, let me go to the page so you can kind of get a visual, Jim, and then I'll explain it. So if you take a look here, this was back in 2002, this study was done to try to explain the Bernoulli effect in swimming. And so what they did is they tied little strings to the, to the dorsal side or, the, or the, the back side of hand and arm all the way up the arm. And in a, in a wind tunnel, you would expect that these, these strings would just go perpendicular to the arm like you see in A here, right? And so they just kind of stick up as you go from front to back through your arm stroke. Right? That's, that's what we would expect. Mm -hmm. But the most amazing thing happened. It proved the Bernoulli effect was actually working. 
The, the strings did not do that. The strings actually laid fairly close to the, to the arm in the direction of the hand. So, so instead of uh, going out at about uh, 90 degrees from the arm, as, as the arm proceeded from front to back, it actually pressed down into the arm almost all the way down, and it went from basically the upper arm down to the hand proving that there was a pressure gradient from the upper arm going down to the hand on the dorsal side of the arm, on the back side of the arm. Mm -hmm. Wild, right? So this was a pretty um, remedial test on, on, uh, on this Bernoulli effect. So later in 2016, they got more tech involved and they really, really showed this pressure differential here. So this was uh, done at a slow swimming speed, and you can see that the ventral pressure was very high. That's the palm side of our, of our arm. And on uh, the dorsal side, it was a lot lower, but you could see it's, you know, there's this kind of big gap in here, right? This mm -hmm. difference because drag and, and lift is created not because it's an individual pressure, but it's the difference between high pressure and low pressure is what we feel. That's what is most important here. That is what creates lift. That is what creates the drag forces. When they're going faster, when they're sprinting versus going slowly in terms of speed, the overall pressures of the ventral side and the dorsal side are lower because now their moving velocity is higher, so water flow is higher, the pressures are lower. However, the pressure differences between the ventral and the dorsal side are much higher. So that solid line here is the differences, and that's the ventral. Mm -hmm. So what does all this mean? Is that, that when we end up going faster, we're actually, if we do it correctly, we're tapping into two different types of forces, drag forces and lift forces. And it's what we're feeling, what that skill of feeling and holding water really is, it's the pressure differential between the ventral and the dorsal side and Bernoulli effect combined together, which I thought is just awesome. Right? Mm -hmm. So when we really want a lot of speed, I teach the deep catch stroke. Why? Because the deep catch sends the arm further from the axis of rotation. If you're further from the axis of rotation, that hand differential from the upper arm or the upper elbow is a lot longer, a lot further mm -hmm. away than if you're using the S stroke, which is I teach for the energy conservation stroke. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so lift forces are, are exist in both, but to really get true high acceleration with high effectiveness, then you want to use the deep catch stroke and maximize that pressure differential, which is really mm -hmm. cool. Now, there's there's one more thing. There's one more thing that I need to explain here, and it goes back to where I started with this. So I started by saying that uh, that that. Drag forces are really a function of action-reaction, right? So for every action, we have equal and opposite reaction. So we push against those water molecules backwards and we go forward. The second law of motion uh, states that force is equal to mass times acceleration, which essentially means that if we want to accelerate more, we just got to use more force. But what surfers don't understand is that, if, is that you can overpower water. 
If you push too hard, you're going to push right through that high pressure system and it's going to do what's what we call slipping. So that's essentially what slipping is, is you're pushing through that differential and you're not, you're not getting that differential at all. You're pushing right through that, that high pressure system on the ventral side of your arm. And so you're mm -hmm. not getting the same effect forward. So, so one way of thinking about this is that for when we think about uh, action reaction, the, the trick here, the, the, the overall trick to really get the maximum distance per stroke or, or maximum, absolute max, maximum propulsion is the energy that we put in to push backwards. That's our, that's our action, right? The energy, if we put 100% energy in, the best swimmers and paddlers in the world will only get 80% of that energy used to move them forward. And then the other 20% is really used just to move water because water is not solid. Water is a liquid. So we can't push against it the same we can against a solid. So some math people out there going, wait, 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 you said equal and opposite, which means I put in 100% energy this way, I better get 100% result, right? Well, you do, but only 80% of that actually moves you forward and the other 20% is wasted. You're just moving water. It's not wasted. You have to do it in order to move forward. Now, those are the best swimmers and paddlers that really have this idea of how to identify that pressure differentiation. So what hope do we have being regular folks that, that are just learning this and that, that haven't learned this feeling of water and this holding water? Well, they're probably more like 60-40 where there's a lot of slipping, slipping happening in their stroke. And this is why, is that they just haven't developed that, that identification of the pressure differential and gone through those motions time and time and time again. And so uh, to give viewers and, and anybody else <laughs> watching or listening something to really think about, there are drills that I teach called sculling. And this goes back to the original question. He's sitting there looking at these sculling drills going, what, what the heck are these sculling drills? They don't teach me it. Like they're like moving arms like this and you're just going back and forth and back and forth. You're not actually going through the arm stroke. And they have, they have no direct correlation to the motion of the arm stroke or the biomechanics of the underwater arm stroke. But what they teach you is they teach you what that pre pressure differential feels like, what that lift feels like mm -hmm. when you're going through it. And as you can, as you can see on screen, people listening won't be able to see this, but you see how I go out, I tilt my hands up as I go out and I tilt my hands in uh, with my thumb up as I come in and that creates lift. And so there's, I'll put a video on the blog that shows some of this, but basically by, by getting in the water and practicing this a lot, especially with your eyes closed and you're really keying in on the kinesthetic cues, um, the more you do it, the less you have to think about it in the moment. And that's really the key with sprinting. The underwater arm stroke happens so quickly. There's so many other variables that we're thinking about when we catch a wave. We can't think about this. We can't think about how we're feeling water in the moment. You have to train it outside of that moment. You have to train it to become, become subconscious. And these are drills that you can use to train it. So mm -hmm. kind of a long explanation of what this abstract concept of feeling water is in scientific mm -hmm. form. So what do you think of that, Jim? Have you heard that before? 
not put that eloquently, no. Um, I don't think anyone on planet Earth has. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy. Yeah, but, you know, um, yeah, man, I have so many thoughts on that. Um, You're right. Like, when I took physics 100 years ago, we learned about the Bernoulli principle. And, of course, they draw, you know, they draw this everything revolves around this lift or design around an airplane wing and why like one length is a little longer than the other to create this like speed of air and pressure differential. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, a pilot or someone could probably explain it much more eloquently than that. But like, it's, it's so neat to kind of hear like kind of the different maybe force vectors of like, yeah, there's drag here or there's velocity happening here with a pressure differential. And there's also velocity, happening here with a pressure differential. And, um, you know, I've had the privilege to work with you and um, get my own paddle assessed. And, you know, I, I, I think a sign of a good coach is like he or she can know all that complicated stuff is happening, but you can give one small verbal cue and say, feel water or pull the ladder rung or whatever it is. And it does that, you know, and Um, you know, to kind of tie this back into, um, your client's email, like the touchy feely stuff, like, you know, I would argue like, yeah, it's it's okay to be touchy feely as long as it gets you to do what you want to do. Right. Like you don't necessarily need to understand the science of it. Um, which it's super cool to nerd out obviously, but you need to understand that like, um, what, what most people call muscle memory, what I would probably call maybe a proprioceptive awareness of uh, what that pressure differential feels like. Because if you're just listening to this and you've never um, had your paddle assessed by someone like Rob, you don't probably know what slipping even feels like, right? So think of that. Like, you know, I paddled for 20 plus years before you told me I was slipping, Yeah. right? And so I'm like, well, what the heck is slipping, you know? And and so it was, it was pretty neat how you went about it. It was like, okay, here, let's kind of like we would do in the clinic. Like, let's assess how you move. Okay, come back over here. Let's look at the footage. This is what you're doing. You see that? And then try it with this simple cue and then go back out. And I think for me, the cue was um, I was overreaching. And so like we did, we did the catch up drill with the fists, right? And, um, and then paddling felt different. And then we came back, looked at the footage and it was like, oh yeah, I can kind of see that. And so as a, as a motor learner, I'm, I'm building that mental kind of connection, that proprioceptive awareness of like, yeah, I can't fully explain it, but I know it feels different. And now it's time for me to kind of like take that out in the ocean and, and try to apply it. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, that's, kind of neat, you know, you teaching like that. I mean, you know, not to, you know, get your ego through the roof, but like in my mind, that's a sign of a good coach because it's so easy to overcoach, you know? Um, When everyone, everyone learns differently. So some, some people's cues are absolutely different than yours. Like you, you keyed in on the anchor and on a couple other things. So there's auditory cues as well. And there's visual cues. So I try to try to teach the kinesthetic cues, like what does it feel like? And that's ultimately when you get down to 
getting to the point where you don't have to think about paddling anymore, it should all be kinesthetic, right? But subconsciously kinesthetic in a feeling. But you can always kind of give yourself checks. Like I give myself checks all the time. Like, oh, I was a bad stroke. And right. I can immediately feel it. but Or I can see it or I can hear it. Um, and so I, I think even with what you do too, because you're very hands-on, like manipulating people's arms, you're still trying to figure out what it feels to them when you're evaluating them, which I think is really similar. It's, it's kind of like a, a puzzle or, uh, or yeah, like a puzzle or a game that you're trying to, trying to figure out what is this person feeling versus what they're saying they're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, what I essentially like what draws me to do what I do is it's kind of like being a detective in a way. Right. Like that's what I was trying to get at. You see, you always come up with the better words. Well, that's that's because I'm dumber than you. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you, have, you have a much higher degree than I do. Yeah. Well, shoot. Um, I don't know if that means much with this, but, uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, like so you can come to me with a shoulder pain and, you know, I can look at um, I can look at your posture. I can look at. Uh, how you move, like lifting your arm or doing push-ups or, hey, Rob, show me an activity that reproduces your pain. And then I can push and pull and do all these tests to try to reproduce your pain and put the whole story together. But like, you know, that, that concept of like motion analysis is a really, um, I think it's a really valuable tool. And it really helps with, I think, well, number one, part of the detective work, which is like, okay, so maybe there are some things with your paddle that have led your rotator cuff in your shoulder to get um, a bit compromised and that's why the tendon is irritated. So uh, we could do these conventional things in therapy, which are like, you know, we've all probably heard of like the rubber band exercises or a little bit of massage or stretch, but maybe, um, maybe that's not enough for some people that want to keep pursuing surfing. Maybe they do need a biomechanical um, kind of tweak to their, uh, the way they're paddling to really just make the whole system work efficient. You know, um, things that I kind of trip out on, um, you know, apropos to that are, you know, when I, so I've been a PT, uh, 12 years or so and early in my career. Um, I was kind of led to believe that movement quality was the root of all evil. Right. And so, what I mean by that is if I go, hey, Rob, you got knee pain? Let me see a squat. And you show me like a little what we call um, collapse where the or femoral collapse valgus. They're pretty much the same thing. And so you could Google right now squats and you'll read all this stuff about how um, genu or knee collapse is like the root cause of knee pain. But then, you know, you could look at like some of the best surfers in the world. Tom Kerr and Kelly Slater. Look at their back knee when they bottom turn. You know, <laughs> yeah, totally. it's like fully valgus and collapsed and you know you're like whoa wait a minute but like yeah that yeah there's so much dissonance in my head and uh and so there's like what i've kind of come to realize is um at least clinically like um movement quality is has probably a variance right like i can line up 10 people and like do the thing that like 
practitioners do and go, hey, okay, you know, let me line that up. And and you know what? One leg's going to be longer. One shoulder is going to sit a little higher. Yeah. You're probably going to have a little scoliosis if you let me find it. And, and those are normal variances that mean nothing, right? And so um, we can watch people walk. Same thing. I could point out all the nuanced differences, but the point is, is none of those things are pathological. And so there's got to be some kind of like, like variance of normal, you know, yeah. and to kind of tie it back, um, movement quality helps people that are in a lot of pain. So if you came to me and you're like, man, I'm in so much pain. I'm, it's like, I could barely move my arm. And I say, you know, sit upright and think about this. Oh yeah, that dropped my pain. That's a very helpful tool for you now until mm-hmm. you get over this. Right. And then movement quality is really helpful with like what you and I do, uh, especially you, which is kind of the p- performance aspect, you know? And so like, um, you know, case in point, like, um, you know, I surfed 20 years without shoulder pain and I was not paddling with probably the best form, you know, but maybe I had a little bit more fitness or my body developed an adaptation to my poor mechanics. Whereas if someone in their forties jumped in with my crap form, it would have overloaded their shoulder quicker because their tendons wouldn't be used to that kind of stress, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I maybe like, I think we, we, we kind of like riff off each other is like, you're, you're, you're the biomechanical side, which has a lot of value on that end and this end, the painful person and the person that wants to get better. Yeah. Right. And that's not, you know, that's not most people I see in the clinic coming off the street where I could go, Hey, you know, do X, Y, and Z you're better. Right. And where where I think you really thrive is those people that go, you know what, I'm, I'm really struggling with paddling because every time I go to paddle, my shoulder either really hurts or I'm just not catching waves. So pain versus performance, there's yeah. probably something to those biomechanics. Well, it's, it's, it reminds me of something you, you said last week is it's never, it's never black and white. It's never, you know, it's never, never and always, there's right. always some gray in there and the body yeah. adapts. Like, yeah. you know, like you said, the, the, it's amazing to me. Uh, the, the body, how it adapts to certain things and it creates, uh, and that's, I mean, if you think about that, going back to, um, you know, the, the caveman and how we've evolved, if we didn't have adaptation, we probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> totally. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. And, and sometimes, um, sometimes in my world, a little bit of research kind of sets the cultural trajectory down this kind of crazy path, you know, um, you know, going back to like some of that valgus collapse, like, don't get me wrong. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to train people in the clinic to exercise valgus collapse. All I, all I'm saying is a lot of those studies are based off people with pain and we know people in pain move differently. And, And the question is, we don't necessarily know, um, do they move differently because they're in pain or did that movement quality lead to pain? Right, right. Totally. Right. Absolutely. And, and so that, it's kind of and, that and you know what? chicken or this, egg. This salty moment has been brought <laughs> to you by Salty PT. And now a word from Tomas, the toy train. I want to be like my friend Gordon, big and strong so I can be a really useful toy train. So I was thinking on going to saltypt.com. Uh... I don't think he trains toy trains. But he said he trains surfers that aren't just injured to be more mobile and strong in addition to rehab patients. 
Yeah, I don't think that includes toy trains. What a jerk. SaltyPT.com, helping surfers, and now toy trains, become stronger and more mobile. Man, that was good. That was really good. Not, not far from the truth, either. Dude, I, I didn't know you had such a high budget for your ads. Well, ever since that last podcast, the, the money has just been, I can't keep it out of the mailbox, you know? So, um, yeah, I sprung a little bit. <laughs> I think you're going to have to show that one to Gavin. Yeah, that's pretty good, man. <laughs> Who, Actually, what? that was uh, that was my Gavin doing the voiceover. I was just going to ask if that was one of your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. So, uh, so Jim, you got something to share with us? Yeah, I guess um, <clears throat> I had a question kind of related back to your story. I don't know um, if it's worth kind of going there. Go there. Who cares? Okay. So if we kind of had to um, ask a follow-up question to what you were just talking about, what slipping is and kind of tie it to those pressures, like, like Rob, what's, what's kind of like maybe some of the more common mistakes that you see that lead to slipping? Because maybe you can describe it in a way for those people who haven't trained with you on what that feels like and, and, and what they can do to kind of better themselves. That's a really good question, and uh, I'll, I'll try to break it down into two sections, one for dry land training and one for in-water training, because slipping is, a, is something that this pressure differential, you can't actually simulate on land at all, uh, and that's why I'm a big proponent of getting in the water. Now, the deep catch stroke is, it takes a lot of energy, and it requires a very strong shoulder joint and girdle in order to not hurt it more because it is because your arm is now further away from the axis of rotation or the fulcrum at this point it's putting a lot of pressure on those tiny little rotator cuff muscles and so there are things that you can do like what you do with your clients and and people do in gyms to strengthen the shoulder in order to prepare it for that type of stroke but in terms of slipping itself that and learning that skill that pressure differential, you've got to get in the water and just do the sculling and, and, and get those repetitions of focus practice in the water. Um, I think the biggest mistake that people have is they think in order to go faster, to accelerate more, I'm just going to lift more weights. And we talked about this last week, mm -hmm. how there is a good correlation between that, but they focus so much on that and they overpower water. And, and that's the concept that 80, 20, yeah. Where when they're overpowering water, they're only moving themselves 60% of the way and they're pushing water 40%. And so they feel like they're doing a lot, but they're not getting the same return on that investment, on that energy. And so in order to compensate for that, they work out harder and they increase their endurance or they increase their strength. And they're still missing a ton. It's kind of like I give the analogy, like if I was the Incredible Hulk and I could just go on forever and I was super strong, but if I had like 20 parachutes tied behind me, it's probably easier to cut the parachutes to go faster than mm -hmm. to get even stronger, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So in terms of mistakes, I think the biggest thing for slipping is overpowering the water or thinking that stronger is always better or harder is always better. Because what this, what Blasevich basically proved is that 
it's not pushing harder against the ventral side or the palm side of your arm that actually makes you go faster. It's getting more of a difference between this side and the, the ventral side and the dorsal side. And it's actually the dorsal side that creates the lift. It's the, it's the lack of pressure on this side is what actually creates the pressure on the other side. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of a different way of thinking about it that way. So being, having more finesse rather than strength at certain moments. And we talked about it last week too, how, you know, especially when people are in the moment catching waves, they're like, oh, I gotta push hard, I gotta push hard. And that's like the number one thing they're told is just go hard, just go hard. Mm -hmm. And I argue in level two and I, and I try to work people down from this. I say, we'll start at like 60% effort and just do it right. You know, do it right at 60% at the right time with the right technique and you'll save energy and you'll probably have a clearer mind to drop into a wave. Um, and then other things they can think about like to identify whether they're slipping, auditory cues are things like sound. Hearing your stroke underwater, hearing that whoosh underwater is actually a bad thing. That's actually mm -hmm. you slipping. So one way you can practice that or to get that hearing is if you're a dead stop and you take a super hard stroke, you're going to hear all that cavitation happening mm -hmm. and that'll cue you, oh, that's what slipping is. Mm -hmm. That's really cool stuff. Um, it makes me think I need to call April Denny and redesign a, a study for her. Oh, but seriously, <laughs> like, like, like what if you can take that complicated science and turn it into... Um, uh, like a like a sentence that you say to people, like you know, like if you were able to read those pressures and then take people that are untrained and just say, pull the ladder rung, put your hand in the mud, uh, whatever cue it might be, and just see how it almost like auto corrects. Yeah. Um, that'd be a really interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. Or the other analogy that I use for a lot is gears on a car. Totally. So you have if you're going from gear one to four, you're gonna spin the tires, you're not gonna you're gonna use a ton of energy but not really go anywhere. Eventually friction will set and you'll go. But with paddling, it's more about building up that momentum and up to that maximum hole speed. Mm -hmm. um, that's a whole nother episode. But things that I think crossing over to the things that you can train surfers with it, it, along those same lines is not only are we trying to build up our overall speed from gear one to gear six, is that within the individual stroke itself, we're also trying to do a progressive stroke from front to back. So a progressive force from front to back so we don't slip too soon. And because as soon as you slip, you lose the chance to get that pressure differential back. It's gone. And because it happens so quickly, you can't get it back until the next stroke. And everybody slips a little. You'll even see in the videos of me sprinting, I'm slipping a little, but it's a little compared to a lot given the speed that I'm going. Um, so I think the things that you can work on in the gym is working on motions that get you to go from, from a, kind of a low amount of weight or pressure to a high amount of weight and pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's why I like the therapy bands because you get that gradual increase in strength from front to back and then back to front and you're kind of working it both ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know, are there any other techniques that might like teach that to somebody like that? that progressive force from front to back. Yeah, I like where your head's at with the band. Um, I think we're in like 
kind of a domain of exercise that really hasn't been discussed nor researched. But, you know, if we had to kind of tie it to the concept of motor learning, um, it's kind of, it probably has like some relevance to sport specific training, like kind of how we would think about skateboarding and how that relates to surfing. Like, okay, just feel how this turn feels and then, you know, repeat that a bunch of times and then try to take it to, uh, surfing. But like, I think probably like you'd probably be the best person to kind of come up with that answer. Like if, if you can train me and get me to feel that or get a person hypothetically to feel what you're talking about, and then you can kind of like, you know, get someone over a ball and be doing kind of like the exercises we talked about last time. And there might be some magic into how they're applying pressure to the band and at what cadence to make it feel like the most like the correct pressure differential that you described. Right. You know, so in essence, it's, it's, it's biofeedback, you know, and, um, and there'd be, you know, I guess the theme of our episode is going to be kind of, what was the word you used? Kind of willy nilly. <laughs> what did your client call it kind of hokey oh yeah foo-foo up foo-foo. in the clouds kumbaya yeah. yeah it's kind of foo-foo um but like like i would argue there's a lot of um kind of merit there essentially that is biofeedback is taking a tactile um kind of uh input using that tactile input reflexively to create a motor output and and, and that is like incredibly complicated and, and fun to think about and talk about the neurophysiology. But the reality is, is like, it doesn't need to be, you know, um, you know, it's kind of like a concept of visualization or just general practice. Like the more you think about the success of doing something physically and the more you go through that practice and then step back and reflect on it. The, the more success you're going to have. So to answer that question, I guess that's a long answer to say, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's something that I'll have to put more thought into moving forward because so much of how I'm trained and how maybe a lot of therapists, uh, musculoskeletal therapists are trained is do these exercises, get stronger, build um, kind of tissue capacity that way. And then you can kind of carry that over into the fitness world where, you know, there's a lot of programs out there from like, you know, functional movement screening and, and so forth and where it's like a lot of attention to movement quality. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I think when you start kind of applying it to what you're talking about, I mean, that would be such a novel thing. It'd be, you'd kind of have to tinker with it to get something really relevant in that sense. Yeah. Another shout out to those guys down at uh, Cal State and April to work. Yeah, Totally. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We can be the at all because we um, in the research, we've kind of like, you know, claimed proprietal or intellectual property now on this idea. So we've, we've created the research question. Now it's up to the really smarty pants to go uh, to go do it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Good luck, April. I'm too old to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> totally. All right. Well, we got another uh, a sp- sponsor ad spot. So, hold on one second. Police interview 12 with Mr. C. Otter of Monterey, California. Go ahead, Mr. C. Otter. So, I was minding my own business, snacking on my urchin, when out of the blue came this human on a white plank. 
He looked like he wasn't even breaking a sweat, singing, SurfingPaddling.com, SurfingPaddling.com, Paddling is so easy now thanks to SurfingPaddling.com. I mean, he had absolutely no regard for the Marine Mammal Protection Act. 50 feet, dude! The audacity! Man, that's awesome. <laughs> was that Ethan? That was Ethan, yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. Their, their voice acting is, uh, is on par, man. Yeah, we're going to have to double their pay or <laughs> get, them, get them some kind of kickback. Well, I tell you, we got a good deal. Those were like 40-second spots. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, that is, that is a big deal. I'm, <laughs> I'm blown away with that. <laughs> All right, man, last, last segment uh, is, uh, is what I like to call Don't Bogart My Spot, Man. Uh, it's about surf travel. And I just was wondering, do you have a, a memorable moment from uh, a surf, tra- surf trip that you've taken um, in the 20-plus years you've been surfing? Yeah, um, yeah, good question. I mean, there's a lot of them. I mean, I've, I, I'm pretty blessed in the sense that I've, I've been given a physically capable body and um, have been able to make time uh, in my late teens and 20s to get out of the country and surf. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to take a year off between uh, my undergraduate degree in physical therapy school and travel around and kind of be a bum and uh, go surfing. But, um, I mean, man, so many cultures and experiences and um, to really kind of boil it down, like a, uh, like maybe one of the more um, quintessential moments I've had as a surfer uh, came in 2012. Um, Rob, you know this, but uh, in 2012, um, I flew out to the North Shore of Oahu and took almost six weeks off of work to work the Vans um, Triple Crown um, events in it was a really novel and neat experience as a physical therapist um, uh, working in the booths at uh, each one of these events and um, being um, one of two physical therapists that got to do that alongside. Um, we had a couple chiropractors, um, an osteopath. Uh, we had uh, uh, an emergency room doctor and, and kind of emergency personnel like EMTs. We had a uh, massage therapist sometimes and an acupuncturist. I mean, it was like a holistic clinic on the beach. And that in itself was just an amazing experience. Um, But my classic kind of North Shore moment was I flew into Hawaii and uh, rented my car and drove out to the North Shore. And the doctor that was hosting me kind of had me up in his... um, uh, kind of sweet, like, uh, I never saw pictures of it or anything like that, but what I, what I came to learn was it was kind of in this, um, in process remodeled garage. So like I had a place to stay that, uh, had a shower and a bed, but it was like, it was, it was, it was essentially a garage with kind of like a wall being in the process of being constructed between these two things. And, um, which was fine, you know, um, it was great. I was happy to be there. And I had never met um, the doctor. His name is Dr. Lee Lindau. He's a great doctor on the North Shore and still uh, uh, puts together a lot of the health care crew at these events. He's a great guy. And um, I had never met Lee Lindau. I had spoken with him on the phone and had emails with him. And um, so never met him face to face. And so I fly in at night. 
I crash out. And then I get this knock on the garage door at like five in the morning. And we have to be at one of the um, surfing events at like, I think it's like 730 uh, uh, to kind of get ready and set up and all that kind of stuff. And and I'm like, you know, kind of jet lagged and half asleep. And I open the garage door and he's standing outside with um, two surfboards. And one of them is like a 9.6 gun. And the other one's in about a 9-0 gun. And he's all, hey, Jim, nice to meet you. You want to go surf with me real quick? And I'm like, uh, what? Like, And we're, we're kind of purchased right in front of um, a spot on the North Shore called Leftovers. His house is there. And um, just uh, north uh, or east of that spot is kind of like a big wave spot called Alligators. And I'm not a big wave surfer by any means. And He's like, uh, oh, I'm going to go get some alligators before we have to go to work. And, you know, I have a, I have my coffin bag with boards. And the biggest board I have is like a 7-2. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, it was dark. And uh, I was like, I don't know, man. Like, uh, maybe I'll kind of hunker down and watch you. And I watched this guy paddle out at like dark 30, catch four or five, like 20 to 25 foot faced waves come in like no big deal and then we just packed up and went to the event and and and, and that it kind of hit me like i'm on the north shore now man <laughs> you know, like, I'm, not, I'm not ready to be here <laughs> oh dude that's awesome i love that story yeah what about you uh i could pull up a similar north shore story um but i was thinking I was thinking our, our trip to Butano was a really fun surf trip. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I've been like you, I've been really lucky to travel, you know, all over the world and, and go to these top spots in the world and really experience the culture and, and realize how lucky I am to be where we're from and to have the experiences and opportunities we have. Um, but sometimes just going s close to home with a couple buds not really expecting the best surf in the world is some of the most fun. And um, you were on this camp trip. We had a couple other friends and we weren't, I remember it was like late fall. We weren't expecting good weather. We weren't, didn't it rain? Yeah, it rained. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it rained pretty hard. But then like the next day, so you came down, we, we surfed this really awesome spot in North Santa Cruz. I'm not going to say where it was, but we got it really good. And there were only a handful of guys. And then you came down on Saturday and we served Butana or yeah, Gazos. I'll say Gazos because nobody's going to believe us. I'll tell you that. And it's right outside of Butano State Park where we were camping. And uh, I, we just set up camp all day there. It was insane. I, I never expected that. It was the wind went offshore. It like, I'll put up photos. People won't believe us that that was that spot. It looked like Indo. Um, not that it was Indo, but it was like amazing. And we had it all to ourselves, just trading waves. And even when it got not so good, it was just as fun. Um, and then, of course, the at night, sitting around the campfire, you know, talking, talk story. And that, it was just, I think those kinds of trips um, are needed <laughs> other than these like I, I love the big extensive week two week month trips to far off places amazing experiences but sometimes just having like something down the road and just going overnight somewhere is is 
with the right people can be just as fun. So that, that one, what was the, what did the guy uh, call us again? I keep forgetting. Yeah, that's where we formed our gang known as the barbecue crew. <laughs> the barbecue crew. Yeah, yeah. but, but we, we, we changed the name from the barbecue crew to um, the Coleman stove crew. Yeah, the stovetop crew. The stovetop crew. Yeah, the guy, the guy paddles out. The guy paddles out next to, yes. there was like one guy that paddled out. There was like four or five of us. And then this guy paddles out. I was like, hey, you guys with that barbecue crew? <laughs> and Jim's like, yeah, what's it to you? <laughs> yeah, because for, for, for those that don't like know where that is, it's kind of in the middle of, the no, middle of nowhere. And Rob and uh, a few of our buds, we had surfed it like all morning for like, I want to say three or four hours at least. And then. We went back up to our car and, you know, I had a Coleman stove and, you know, we busted out the cooler and we're like, screw it. We're making breakfast like right here. Right. And so it turned into an all day affair at the beach with this like, like Coleman stove in the parking lot with our table and all our like cooking supplies. And I think it was after that brunch, I was first one back out in the water and uh, a local from Santa Cruz had driven up and he paddled out with his like standard salty look. And I think he was kind of sizing me up in the water. And I think you guys had kind of like peppered him with some like, like nice attitude in the parking lot. Like, I think, I think I later found out you guys offered him a sandwich. And, uh, and so he paddles out, kind of gives me the stink guy and just goes, you with the barbecue crew. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm with the barbecue crew. And, uh, all, all tension was diffused and we just like were able to talk to each other there and, and, and kind of be normal people. Dude, it was um, insane. That's so it just so goes rough. to show you, you know, all you got to do is, you know, be nice to people and offer them a sandwich from yeah, time Offer to time. them a sandwich, some, some <laughs> bacon and stuff. It was crazy because we started making lunch thinking, oh, we're just going to, you know, open beers in the parking lot and be those salty guys that look at the sea in the afternoon. I don't want to go back to the campsite. You know, we ended up paddling back out like and had three sessions that day. We had three sessions. Yeah, I, I, I think we, I mean, to this day, I mean, that was maybe three, three plus years ago now. But yeah, I mean, that was like, you know, eight plus hours in the water, yeah. um, which I've yet to do to this day. So <laughs> yeah, that was that trip actually um, was the trip that said, you know what? Like, I'm done with this one wetsuit game. Oh, yeah. You know, there's nothing worse than putting on um, a cold, sandy wetsuit in in November in California. And you're like, oh, I got to like, I got to put this thing on again. Like, I mean, you know, you talk about it was wet from the day before, too, because I think that was Sunday was the barbecue day. And we had all day Saturday, too. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was an epic trip for sure. And epic in the sense like yeah it wasn't um you know sand point mexico but it was like epic because i think for me our our expectations were so low and you know you talk about pressure differential like the reality of my expectations like there was such a difference between what was happening and what i thought was going to happen that, <laughs> yeah. that alone created a lift right like i was yeah. like oh my gosh this is amazing right and whereas like if you if you fly to Mexico, like your expectations are super high, and if they don't get met, you're kind of like, oh, I got skunked, and no, nah, not really. It just didn't kind of satisfy what you you know what you kind of like you know predestined in your mind. So absolutely, man. Yeah, 
Yeah. But you're right. I, I want to write a whole book called uh, Keep the Bar Low. There you and go. that's the key to happiness. That's right. Homer Simpson said uh, there's a lesson there and it's never try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I hope nobody takes that actual advice from us. That's terrible. Yeah, yeah we're going to have to call April Denny and um, really make sure she doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> April needs to set the bar high, but we are going to set it low Yeah, <laughs> every time. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks, uh, thanks again, uh, Jim. We wasted another hour of our lives um, yep. talking surfing and science and math. And I appreciate your time. I appreciate um, your knowledge and your questions. And I appreciate everybody out there listening and watching. Thank you guys so much. Uh, make sure you get a hold of us. Let us know how we're doing. Because, like we said last week, we don't know what we're doing. And we need some guidance, so <laughs> help us out, please. But thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful uh, rest of the week. And you want to do this again next week? Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's do it. <laughs> All right, see you guys. Take care, guys.